There is one text message that resulted in 7,000 fewer New Yorkers ending up in jail. In today's episode of Nudge, you'll learn what that magic text message is and how to get anyone to say yes. It's a cracking episode, but first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. I have wanted to get Dan Pink on this podcast for years. If you don't know who Dan Pink is, he's the best-selling author of books like Drive, When, and The Power of Regret. Back in 2014, I was struggling in my marketing undergraduate course. One of my modules was Human Relations, but I wasn't interested. I was skipping classes, I was failing tests, and I was looking a lot like a potential dropout. One day, my professor handed me a copy of Dan Pink's book, Drive, and I wasn't really a big reader at the time, but this book, it gripped me. It pulled back the curtains on how people made decisions, clearly showing why we act the way we do. The book helped kickstart my interest in behavioural science and helped me graduate. Now fast forward to 2020 and I sent Dan Pink an email telling him this story, asking him if he'd come on my show. He turned me down, saying he was too busy working on his latest book. He suggested I get in touch with him the year later. No problem. I waited and I contacted him that following year. He replied, being very kind but saying again that he was too busy and saying I should wait until the next year. I did. I waited. I asked again earlier this year, but two years on, I'm still yet to get Dan on the show. I don't blame Dan, by the way. He's a busy, important guy, but I do blame myself. I'm meant to be an expert in persuasion. For this show, I share studies on how people make decisions and how to influence those decisions. So why can't I get Dan to come on the show? How come I'm not persuasive enough? Well, it turns out I had a lot to learn about persuasion. Today, I speak with a real expert on influence, and that's Yale professor Zoe Chance. Her course on the science of influence is the most popular course at Yale University, and her book, Influence is Your Superpower, is an international bestseller. In today's show, she breaks down how to get people to say yes, explaining how Steve Jobs influenced people, how Robert Cialdini convinced people to give up their weekends to volunteer, and tips for me to use on Dan Pink. Anyway, to kick off, here's Zoe. She starts by explaining that to get someone to say yes or to take action, you have to start by making it easy. The biggest factor determining people's behavior is how easy is it or how much effort did they have to put in? And I'll share a study and then I'll share a marketing metric related to this. And the, the study is a study that was done in New York City with people who had been accused of crimes and they had court dates. What happens to a lot of people who are actually in jail, violated parole, and um, people who end up having a lot of trouble in the criminal justice system, at least in the United States, is that they forgot they forgot to show up for their court date. All of us are forgetful. We all have lots of things on our minds. 
even things that are really important, like life-saving medication or court dates can be influenced by simple interventions like text messages. And in the study in New York City, rates of showing up for these particular court dates increased by 8% just by a simple text message reminder. And this helped in this one study, 7,000 people not go to jail just by this one research study. That's incredible, right? 7,000 fewer people in jail just because they were reminded to turn up to court with a text message. That simple text increased attendance from 30% to 38%. For those who then showed up, two-thirds of the cases were dismissed, meaning 7,000 fewer people in jail. But how can I apply this finding? How can I get people to say yes? In so many cases, we can get reminders, other people can get reminders, and we can just make it easier for them to take action. Like when you make set up meetings with people, are you yourself putting a meeting invite on their calendar with all of the information that they need? Or are you relying on them to remember that they're supposed to meet with you? Are you checking in with them? the day before to say, hey, looking forward to our conversation. Phil, just like you did this morning, right? And you follow up and you're sharing something helpful with me. By the way, people who are listening, Phil is really exceptional. I've been doing lots and lots of podcasts and other interviews related to this book. And Phil makes it so, so easy by sharing, here's some topics of conversation that I'm hoping we'll cover. And he's done all this research extensively reading the book, but then he goes the extra mile of saying, and here's some example answers. Like you can talk about anything, but I'm going to make it as easy as possible. There's no one on earth who could have made it easier for me (laughs) to do this interview. And I really appreciate it. And it's a joy. It's also important to note here, and this is again getting really nerdy because I know this is a, a group of listeners that you're already interested in behavioral science. What's actually the determining factor here is not just actual ease and effort, but it's perceived ease and effort. In the case of reminders, it's just remembering, right? But um, there's this metric called the customer effort score. That's the most underused, underappreciated marketing metric. And even if you're not in marketing, you can take inspiration from this. This metric is more determining of how long people are doing business with you, how much business they're doing with you. Negative word of mouth which is even more important than positive word of mouth, which is even more important than sales and marketing. And this customer effort score comes down essentially to one question, which is just how much effort did you have to make? This is more important than satisfaction. That was really nice of Zoe to say all those kind things about my prep work before a show. And it, it made me realise I was making it easy for guests who had already agree- who I was making it easy for guests who had already agreed to come on But I hadn't made it easy for Dan. I didn't add a link in my email to let him book time. I didn't send him timely reminders. Instead, I left it months between asking. And I didn't even tell him what to expect from coming on the show. In other words, I didn't reduce this customer effort score. But there's more to influence than just making it easy. There are other tips and tricks too. Some that are so effective, Zoe warned me that I should only use them rarely. Here's Zoe talking through this powerful way to influence. There's a study I want to share with you with a caveat warning label at the beginning that 
this is different from most of the techniques that I teach and talk about that are comfortable on both sides, where this one, if you overuse it, it can seem manipulative and transactional. So it's something to use rarely, maybe once with each person, not again and again in an ongoing relationship. And this is what researchers call the door in the face technique. And it's just asking for something huge that you don't expect to get, and then following up with a request that's small. It's very powerful for a lot of reasons. The main one is that we don't have a way of judging value or size is something big or small, except in comparison to something else. And I think this study by, which is a classic by Robert Cialdini illustrates this brilliantly. And in the field, we call it the juvenile delinquents at the zoo study. This was done by researchers at um, Arizona State University, where they approached people on campus who were just walking along, going about their day. And researchers came up and said, excuse me, hey, um, sorry to bother you. I'm working with an organization that helps troubled youth. And we have this zoo trip next week. We're taking some teenage criminals to the zoo and we're down one chaperone. And I'm just looking for somebody who can help us. It's Thursday afternoon. Can you come and do this? And so you decide to me, (laughs) the idea of chaperoning anybody at the zoo, let alone teenagers, let alone teenage criminals is like one of my worst nightmares. And also I'm super busy, so there's no possible way. In this study, one of the surprising things is that actually 17% of people said yes right away. And one of the things this illustrates is that people are so nice. They're nicer than we imagine. Other research by actually someone that you've talked to on the show, Vanessa Bonds, has found that people are two or three times more likely to say yes to an in-person request than we would have imagined. So this is the first important thing. But that's not the door in the face part. The door in the face part is with another group of similar people, rather than asking first about coming to the zoo, they asked another question, even bigger request. And they said, explain the organization they work with. And they say, we're looking for tutors. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to commit two hours a week for the next two years to tutoring these teenage criminals. And in this particular study, nobody said yes. That's a huge request. But then when they said, okay, I understand. Well, you know what? We're also looking for chaperones for the zoo trip next week. It's on Thursday afternoon. Is there any chance? And actually more than half of people said yes to that request to go to the zoo, which in isolation sounded crazy, but in contrast to two hours a week for the next two years, it sounded small. That's the psychology of the door in the face request that you ask for something big and then you make a concession to ask for something small. People see you as reasonable. They feel more inclined to help you out because they've already said no to the initial big thing. And they see that request as much smaller in comparison to the big one. One interesting thing for people who like the science like Phil and I do is that there was a replication of this um, within the past year or two by Oliver Genschau and some colleagues in Germany, and they found similar results, except they found people were even nicer. So when they were asking for two hours a week for the next two years, they actually did have some people saying yes, even to that insanely, insanely giant request. 
the door in the face technique encouraged 50% of random people to give up their Thursday to chaperone some kids. The door in the face technique, by the way, is not an uncommon tactic. You've probably experienced it yourself. But studies suggest that the time between the two asks is really important. If possible, you need to minimize the time between the really big ask and then the smaller ask. French researchers in 2010 found that the technique is much more effective if there's no delay between the first and second requests. In the study, waitresses were instructed to ask random restaurant patrons whether they wanted dessert at the end of their meal. If the diner refused, the waitress would then either immediately ask the diner if they wanted tea or coffee, or waited three minutes and then asked the same thing, do you want three or coffee? So either asking right away or waiting three minutes to ask. They found that diners are far more likely to say yes to the tea or coffee when the waitress offers it immediately rather than when they wait three minutes. The foot in the door technique really has to be immediate, has to be right after your initial ask. With this in mind, I didn't think it would be a good tactic to use on Dan Pink. I hadn't heard from him in a few months and we weren't exactly on first name terms. So asking for something major only to back down probably wouldn't work as as there was too much time between the asks. Despite this, I still wondered why this tactic worked so well. Here's Zoe explaining the science behind it. Other research on negotiations has found that when you start high and then you make a concession, they like you better because you made the concession. They also like the negotiation better and feel more confident themselves about them being a good negotiator because they got you to calm down and they're more likely to follow through with the agreement. So this door in the face idea is incredibly powerful and it's just something to use carefully mindfully, and gently. So when you're asking for this initial big thing, you don't want to come across as entitled, right? You're asking with hope and enthusiasm, but not expectation. But one last caveat is that I've had some students who practice this, who have internalized the idea that people are going to say no to the big thing. And so what they're focused on is the small thing. And then they ask for a big thing that they didn't actually want don't be one of those people. Only ask for something that you want. Like I've had students ask celebrities to come and do a guest lecture at Yale with the expectation that then they would just ask for something much smaller, like, um, would you be willing, I don't know, to sign a copy of your book or something like this. But then the celebrity says yes to coming and doing a guest lecture at Yale. And the student is like, oh my God, Zoe, what do I do? I don't have funding. I don't know how to get the word out. I don't like, oh my God, this is so much work. I'm like, yeah, it's on you. You got to figure that out. <laughs> it's incredible how powerful this door in the face technique can be at getting people to say yes. As Zoe said, it's made celebrities agree to give university talks. That's, that's pretty incredible. But I realised I was pitching Dan over email, not face-to-face. So does the technique work over web? I did a little research and I found a study titled Fundraising on the Web, the effect of an electronic door-in-the-face technique on compliance to a request. The study used the door-in-the-face technique to boost donations for children victims of mine injuries on a website. The homepage in the study provided pictures of children with injuries. In the control, the homepage asked for donations and redirected participants to a page with a picture and several links to outside charity organisations. 
In the door in the face condition, the homepage was the same, but the link they were redirected to had a much bigger ask. They weren't just asking for donations, they were asking for a donation and then several hours of your time over the next few weeks to volunteer for the charity. Now, obviously, that is a much bigger ask to spend hours of your time volunteering rather than just donating. So not many people accepted. But then came the smaller follow-up request. On the page, there was a button where you could refuse the request and the button said something like, I don't have the time. And then after the refusal, the participants were redirected to the same page as the control where you were asked to donate and it sent you off to links to outside charities. The researcher measured the number of clicks on these links and the results showed that participants in the door in the face condition were far more willing to click on those outside links, i.e. far more likely to go and donate, than those in the control condition. Ultimately, the results show that the technique works just as well online, as long as you follow those principles of the bigger ask and the smaller ask and and slimming the gap between the asks. Now next up, I asked Zoe for her favourite example of influence and she shares an incredible story from Steve Jobs. That's coming right up after this quick 60 second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. One of my favorite examples of framing is uh, the story of how Steve Jobs persuaded John Scully to move from his cushy job as CEO of a billion dollar company to come to head Apple Computer, which had at that time been founded four years ago in a garage. And it was not obvious that this was going to be a good move. By the way, I shared this story in an event at PepsiCo yesterday morning, and I was very nervous about it because of the frame that Steve Jobs used. The context here is important. And the context is that Steve Jobs had actually already asked John Scully three or four times. John Scully had said no. And this is important because one of the most important things we can do to become more influential is to follow up and ask again after somebody has said no. And I'll say more about that after. But during the course of these conversations, the two men had become friends. So they have this rapport and that's what has John Scully feeling open-minded enough to actually hear and internalize when Steve Jobs asks him the question, he says, John, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? And John Scully says, I just gulped and I knew I would wonder for the rest of my life what I had missed. Now, this frame is a gut punch. It's 
powerful, it's sticky because it's true. That's literally what John Scully is doing, right? He's selling sugar water. And of course, there's the added drama for the rest of your life. But when John Scully hears this, and because he likes Steve Jobs, he actually listens and reflects on, oh my God, this is my life. Is this what I want my legacy to be? No, I want to do something different and bigger, more important. I want to help affect change. One effective tactic to get someone to say yes is to reframe the question. Don't say, will you be my CEO? Say, do you want to change the world? Robert Cialdini in his book, Persuasion explains how reframing can be an effective sales tactic. He shares a study where researchers were trying to get people to share their email address with a fictional energy drink company about to launch a new soft drink. The idea was, if the customer gave their email address, they'd receive some instructions on how to get a free sample. That was the incentive. Now, this was a face-to-face study, so researchers were going up to people in the street and asking for their email address. In this study, there was the control, and in the control, 50% of people were stopped and asked, can you provide your email address so we can send you a free sample? Now, unsurprisingly, most people are very reluctant to this. Only 33% of people volunteered their email address. For the other half of the participants, the researchers reframed the question. They asked initially, do you consider yourself to be someone who is adventurous and likes to try new things? Now, when they successfully asked that to a person, the participants almost always replied by saying, yes, yeah, I am someone who's adventurous. I am someone who likes to try new things. Then the researchers asked the follow-up. They said, okay, can you provide your email to try this new energy drink? And now 75.7% of people gave their email addresses. So from 33% to 75% just by reframing the question. Reframing is clearly a very powerful way to influence. And I started to think about sending Dan Pink an email asking him if he considered himself to be adventurous. But then Zoe explained that reframing doesn't have to be so in your face. It can be a little bit more nuanced than that. There's a guy named Frank Luntz, who is, in my opinion, the greatest framer, at least in the United States. He's a Republican strategist, and he has pioneered this testing apparatus that goes straight to the gator brain and gets gator responses, positive or negative, to frames of all kinds of various types, whatever the purpose is. Just in case you didn't hear the earlier, the previous episode with Zoe, the gator brain is the name Zoe uses for the fast system one part of the brain that makes snap decisions. Franklin set up tests to see how the gator brain responds to different frames. Here's Zoe explaining how he used this research to get more people to take the vaccine. During the pandemic, he was working on what is going to be the best frame to help Republicans get vaccinated. The frame that he found was nine out of 10 doctors are getting the vaccine. That's one example. He became famous during the 1990s when he was brought on by the Republican Party to shift thinking in the US around inheritance tax. Their big donors, just like anyone's big donors, have a lot of money and they were paying inheritance tax and they preferred not to, as many people do. And the frame that he tested and found to be 
most effective in gaining support against the inheritance tax. So people thought the inheritance tax was bad when you shifted it to the frame death tax. Should people be taxed for dying? That sounds crazy, right? In contrast, another frame that was being used was the estate tax. And if someone has an estate, they should probably pay tax because they're really, really rich, right? So estate tax, probably a good thing, regardless of the party that you're in. And death tax, probably a bad thing, regardless of the party that you're in and regardless of how much money that you have. To get people to agree that inheritance tax was bad, Frank didn't overwhelm people with figures, data or facts like most of us do. He just reframed it, calling it death tax. This reframing had a major impact. When the effort first began, the limit for estate tax was $650,000. And by a series of legislation uh, levels changing for this now death tax, we've gotten to a situation in the United States where the level is at has been at $11 million. It might even be $13 million by now. And if you are married then your total estate can be over $20 million without paying any tax at all when you pass. It's a powerful example of framing. The amount of tax-free inheritance Americans can receive used to be around $700,000, but since it was reframed to death tax, the tax-free amount has shot up to $20 million. Incredible. Here's Zoe explaining the tests that Franklin's team would run to discover these new frames. And what Franklin's does is he has a dial testing apparatus, which is importantly different from asking people to bubble in Likert scales, like how much do you like one to five? That's a system two response where you're trying to figure out what should be three, what should be five. And what he does is just has you practice twisting a knob left or right for positive or negative, like, dislike, and he'll have you practice on questions like pizza, positive, negative, mushrooms on your pizza, positive, negative, et cetera. And then he'll just have you listen to or read a series of frames. One of the most powerful examples of framing going on in the world right now has been around the situation in Ukraine. And situation already is a frame. But the reason, as I see it, that the world has rallied so quickly and so powerfully around the nation of Ukraine is the really expert use of frames. And um, maybe I should brag, one of the people working on that is a student of mine who's deputy minister of culture in Ukraine. And he was actually telling me before the invasion, this is going to be the biggest influence and persuasion campaign you have ever seen. And he was absolutely right. Where, first of all, instead of the beginning frames that we're calling it a conflict, the dominant frames have shifted in media to invasion war, even genocide and atrocities. But even more than that, Zelensky, my former student Tadas, and their whole team have done a phenomenal job of framing this as not just about Ukraine, but this is an invasion of Europe. And then not just an invasion of Europe, but it is an assault on democracy. 
So I'll leave that for listeners to consider. How might you use frames, specifically labels and names, even more powerfully when describing your own great ideas and the topics you care about? To get someone to say yes, there are a lot of tactics you can use. Today, Zoe has shared studies that show how making it easy got people to turn up to their court dates, how the the door-in-the-face technique increased volunteer sign-ups, and how reframing a question got a billionaire CEO to say yes. Now, over time, I applied some of these tactics in my back-and-forth email with Dan. I used a bit of reframing. I tried a bit of anchoring. I made it easier. And eventually, it worked. Dan said yes, he will come on the show, and I've got Zoe to thank. All right, folks, that is all for today. Now, if you liked this episode and you're looking for something to listen to next, then go and listen to one of the first episodes of Nudge I created. It was created almost three years ago, so I guarantee heaps of you haven't heard it. It is episode two, published way back in 2019, and it is called Five Highly Effective Negotiation Tactics. On that show, you'll hear heaps more scientifically proven tactics to get people to say yes. So go and listen to that. I've left a link to listen to it in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find some of my screenshots of my back and forth emails with Dan. So if any of you nosy lot want to take a look at those and see some of the tactics I used, you can go click on that there in the show notes. But more importantly, in the show notes, you'll find a link to Zoe's brilliant book, Influence is Your Superpower. This book is dynamite. If it can help me get Dan Pink on my show, then it can definitely help you in your work. Zoe is also dedicating 50% of the profits from her book to the environmental charity 350.org. That charity is standing up to the fossil fuel industry, campaigning to stop all new coal, oil and gas projects. It's a worthy cause, so go and grab a copy of Zoe's book. That's all for this week. If you want more marketing tips, then please do sign up to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter. On all of those platforms, I share regular marketing tips. So please go ahead and follow me on all those platforms. Anyway, I'm Phil Agnew. You have been listening to Nudge and thank you again for listening.